0: Have you ever felt so anxious you feel sick to your stomach or need to go to the bathroom? Or have you ever felt depressed and your gut isn't working properly? Your gut is referred to as your second brain and has a big impact on your mental health. In this episode, I chat with GI doc Dr. Kazemi about mental health and gut health, celiac disease, and how to keep your gut healthy. The Mental Health and Wealth Show, The Mental Health and Wealth Show, The Mental Health and Wealth Show. Welcome to the Mental Health and Wealth Show podcast. This is your host, Melanie Lockhart. My journey with money and mental health started in 2012 when I was depressed and anxious about my student loan debt. In 2013, I started my blog, Dear Debt, which chronicled my debt payoff journey and changed my life. I later published my book of the same name about how I paid off $81,000 in student loan debt. It was my time blogging that showed me that I wasn't alone in my mental health struggles around money, and that my own mental health impacted how I related to money. My mission now is to help others feel less alone and tackle these difficult topics. As a disclaimer, I am not a mental health professional or a financial professional, and all content on the show should not be considered professional medical or financial advice. As a trigger warning, please note that content on the show may include sensitive topics around mental health and suicide. If you are in distress, please get in touch with a professional by texting HOME to 741-741. Thank you so much for being here, and if you'd like to support the podcast, please subscribe and review on your favorite podcast platform, and feel free to share episodes on social media and tag me at Melanie Lockhart. I would love to hear from you. This is Melanie Lockhart, host of the Mental Health and Wealth Show. Today, I'm interviewing Dr. Kazemi, who grew up in France until he was 11 years old and moved to Northern California. He then relocated to Northern Virginia at age 16. He graduated with honors from George Mason University with a BS in biology and received his MD from St. George University, SOM Granada, and completed his internal medicine residency at the University of Louisville. Dr. Kusemi completed his gastroenterology fellowship at Allegheny General Hospital, Temple University, and is a board-certified gastroenterologist. So as you can imagine, we are talking to a doctor today about gut health and mental health, and I am so excited. Welcome to the show.
1: Hi there. How are you doing?
0: (laughs) Good. I'm happy to chat with you about one of my favorite topics that I've been deep diving into for the past few years.
1: Yeah, this is definitely an interesting topic and uh, I'm excited to talk about this.
0: I'm so excited to share this with my audience because obviously with the title of the show, The Mental Health and Wealth Show, I'm very interested about um, you know the intersection of money and mental health. But obviously with mental health, there's the connection between physical health as well. Like I think they're very integrated. And I think that so many people like to just think of My mental health is one thing, my physical health is one thing, my financial health is one thing, but they're all really connected. And so I personally think we need to look at everything holistically, because if you don't feel good in your body, you're probably not going to feel good in your mind and vice versa. And it wasn't until a few years ago that I really understood the connection between gut health and mental health. Like, for example, a few years ago, I realized that, oh, there's a whole enteric nervous system in your gut. And, you know, when you say people have a gut feeling like that's not wrong, you know?
1: Exactly. And not only that, but also the idea that the uh, enteric nervous system, which is that nervous system in the gut, along with the central nervous system, which is the nervous system of the brain and the spinal cord, these two have a bidirectional communication. So they work together, they they communicate very well, and that that in itself is very important in how we feel, how we function. So that's very important.
0: Yes, definitely. So as we just kind of prefaced, your mental health and gut health are intricately connected. As you said, they are bidirectional. Yet it's something we don't often talk about or realize. And I actually read about a year ago that the majority of your serotonin is also created in your gut, which I think would have sweeping implications on your mental health if you have gut health issues. So can you kind of explain further what the connection is between mental health and gut health?
1: Yeah, sure. And actually, uh, just to kind of backtrack, serotonin, just to let them know, is, is a neurotransmitter. And it was initially found in the bloodstream. But soon after uh, it was discovered, we noticed that it had its effects on these, the central nervous system. And you know, from that, we determined that it had effects on mood, temperature regulation, and a lot of different factors. Now, later on, years later, they found that, hey, this is actually being produced in the intestines. And about 95% of the serotonin that we find in our body is produced in the intestinal wall. And then through the intestinal wall, it has effects on the gut locally, but also can be taken up through the bloodstream and also crosses the blood brain barrier. And then it has effects on the central nervous system, which is when we talk about the sleep and mood and appetites and all of that good stuff. But in the gut, it also has effects in terms of allowing the gut to function properly. So serotonin does a lot of stuff, not only for the central nervous system, but also for the gut itself. Now, through the years we've noticed that not only does things like serotonin but other things hormones neurotransmitters and even immunological factors have affected and help the gut work better but then also seems to also affect the mind and and this is when we talk about things like depression and anxiety and how those things can work and affect the gut or vice versa the gut affecting the brain and potentially causing things like depressive symptoms or anxiety symptoms.
0: Thank you so much for sharing. Yeah. It was wild to me a few years ago when I heard about the I think it's called the blood brain barrier, correct?
1: Exactly, yes. And
0: and something called leaky gut and how certain things can kind of leak into your bloodstream, triggering inflammation, which can also cause depression. And that was so wild to me because as someone that has suffered from depression in my life as well and anxiety, I've always thought, oh, you know, I have a chemical imbalance in my brain or certain things have happened to, to trigger this depression or anxiety. I had never realized that it could be an inflammatory response.
1: Yeah, and actually, so there, there's definitely this is a strong, a significant interest in the scientific world where they just started to kind of look into this whole idea and leaky gut sometimes is used broadly, and that's especially us gastroenterologists. We're not very fond of that term in just the general population because some people will say, Oh, I have bloating, I have this, and this is leaky gut. But exactly what you said leaky gut typically means that there's something going on in the intestinal permeability, which allows things, metabolites, uh, molecules, or even bacteria to cross through the intestinal wall. And into the bloodstream and then eventually causing symptoms or causing issues. And some of this can lead to things like fatigue and brain fog and things like that. So uh, yes, 100%, there's there's a link with what's going on in your gut and how you feel, whether it's physically, psychologically, or even uh, neurologically.
0: Yeah, and that's so important to consider, because like I said, I think so many of us kind of think that there's this differentiation between our mind and our body. And, you know, mental health is one thing, physical health is another, but they're so integrated. And um, to my knowledge, the connection between gut health and mental health is something relatively recent, I think, from the past few decades, like I think maybe 20 or 30 years old. Am I correct with that?
1: Yeah, exactly. So there's a study long time ago, about 20, I say long time ago, but 20, 30 years ago, that basically looked at mice. And a lot of these studies initially were done on mice, but they looked at mice and even looked at the bacteria in their gut and see whether that was going to have a, an effect on them. And they actually found that the germ-free mice, or the mice that were basically cleaned out of any germ in their gut, had almost kind of like an impaired stress response. And so that tells us how things as simple as not only the enteric nervous system, but also the gut bacteria, the gut flora, the microbiome that we speak of, how that potentially can also affect just how we feel.
0: Thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah, I think this is such an interesting topic. And as some of my listeners know, I was recently diagnosed with celiac disease, which came as a complete shock to me because my symptoms were not what I thought as typical. And I had thought it was just, oh, it's just a wheat allergy before I got diagnosed with it. Didn't realize it's, you know, an (laughs) autoimmune disorder that's much more serious than just a typical allergy. And, you know, I had digestive symptoms. I had debilitating fatigue to the point where I would have five shots of espresso and not feel anything. (laughs) Or (laughs) I would I, I would be in bed for two days and not feel rested. And I would have these wild headaches and brain fog where I felt like there was a wet blanket sitting atop my brain. And as a writer and as a creator, that's very difficult to do anything when it feels like your brain is compromised. And so, you know, I went to my physician and I said, something is not right. I'm having these issues with my gut. I'm having so many additional symptoms. Can you test me for food allergies? And everything came back normal except the celiac panel. And then, you know, I did the The blood test, the endoscopy. I had moderate damage to the villi of my intestines. And, you know, that was a shock to me because like I said, I just thought, oh, it's a wheat allergy. And I was like, oh no, it is an autoimmune response that attacks. Yeah. It attacks the villi of the intestines, making it hard to absorb nutrients and creates a whole inflammatory response, which can create hundreds of symptoms, which is so wild to me. So you know, what causes some of those neurological symptoms? Because celiac is typically considered, oh, it's, a, it's around the gut. There's gut issues. But as I, you know, saw for, from firsthand experience, it can cause so many neurological symptoms as well.
1: Yeah, and actually, so you define celiac very well. Um, it's not just this kind of sensitivity. Although there are people who don't have celiac and that may, may be sensitive to gluten. So that's something to kind of keep in mind. But celiac itself is this kind of immune disorder that's triggered by gluten. And gluten is typically found in wheat and all of those those grains. And in these genetically predisposed individuals, they develop symptoms. And like you said, a lot of people, most people have GI symptoms. So they'll have bloating, abdominal pain, and some of these things. However, in addition to that, you can have symptoms that evolve uh, that are kind of secondary related to what just happened in the gut, which means you develop deficiencies in vitamins, you develop deficiencies in iron, which then causes iron deficiency. And you can eventually also lead to weight loss. So there's a lot of physical symptoms. In terms of the neurological symptoms, we're not a hundred percent sure exactly, but we know that some of these can be related to some of the deficiencies that occur. We know that it can be involved also with the cytokines and some of these inflammatory situations that they develop from the celiac itself and stress. Uh, a lot of individuals with just overall autoimmune diseases have high levels of stress hormones. And all of this can impact you psychologically and neurologically. And that's why a lot of people with these chronic diseases, including celiac, will develop anxiety or at risk of anxiety, depression, neurological symptoms like paresthesias. And what that means is you get these numbing, which kind of like a, a, a numbing in the fingers or pain in the fingers, and sometimes even also headaches and migraines. So there's this link with this physical, neurological symptoms that can and seem to be related to just the overall inflammatory process that is celiac.
0: You know, so I read kind of, as you mentioned, that there needs to be kind of a genetic predisposition for celiac. Someone needs to be eating gluten. And typically, I think there needs to be some kind of environmental factor to kind of quote, activate that gene, so to speak. And I'm so curious because. When I was 20 years old, I volunteered at a children's hospital to read to kids. I thought it would be a, a good way to use my theater degree. At the time, I was like, "Oh, what <laughs> well, would be a fun way to kind of use my theater degree and give back to the community?" And I was like, "I want to read to sick kids in the children's hospital." And it was so That's fun. Nice. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was very so, nice of you. <laughs> it was so fun for about a month, and then at the end of the month, I like <laughs> had this weird thing on my toe. I thought I stubbed my toe. And I was like, that's weird. I don't remember stubbing my toe. And uh, to make a long story short, it did not go away. And I went to the doctor and I had MRSA and I had no idea what MRSA was. And they were like, have you been in a jail or a hospital recently? And I was like, yeah, I've I've been volunteering (laughs) at a children's hospital. And they were like, yeah, MRSA is an antibiotic resistant staph infection. And, you know, as you can tell from the name antibiotic resistant, (laughs) well, that's exactly what it was that I was resistant to these antibiotics. And to make a very long um, story short, the weird thing that happened on my toe kind of moved up my whole like half of my body and was not going away. And I was on antibiotics for six months. And I was on antibiotics for six months because the infection was spreading and it's highly contagious, and it was not going away. And so luckily, the very last antibiotic that we tried, which I don't remember the name, finally worked because we were at the point where they were like, if this antibiotic doesn't work, we need to admit you to the hospital. And luckily, that last antibiotic did work because uh, (laughs) it was like my last- So this is
1: basically like a rash that, that, that progressed through your entire half of the body?
0: Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, wow. it went up from my toe to both of my legs to like my hands and it was so uh gross to be honest. Um and <laughs> debilitating. It, it was not painful uh to me, it was just unsightly and uncomfortable and also this kind of feeling of lack of control because it just kept spreading and then I was you know, I kept being on these antibiotics for like one month at a time. Like, let's try this one for one month. Let's try this one for one month. And it's like, oh, wow, now I understand why it's called an antibiotic resistant staph infection, because none of these are working. (laughs) And, you know, like I said, finally, the last antibiotics that I was on, Worked and it went away. And I was like, oh my gosh, I've never been so happy to just see my body look normal and feel normal. I don't have to wear like gloves anymore. <laughs>
1: like, yeah, well, congratulations, you were able to get that taken care of.
0: Yeah, it was like so creepy and weird. And it was like my last year in college. And so it was like not a fun time for me. <laughs> but, anyways, like I was so happy that it, the last antibiotic finally worked and, you know, went away. And I haven't suffered anything from it since well, you know, in my mind. But (laughs) what I wanted to say is that I feel my digestion was never the same after that. And I have read that antibiotics are kind of like a huge gut buster, like it just can totally wipe away your gut microbiome. And so obviously, this wasn't just one round of antibiotics for five to 10 days. This was six months of antibiotics. And I feel like my digestive system was never the same after that. Do you think that could be a potential environmental trigger for celiac? And also what should people know about the relationship between antibiotics and gut health?
1: So a very good question. And I think in terms of whether the antibiotics or this whole disease or issue that you had a couple years ago, whether that was the, almost a trigger that caused celiac is difficult for me to tell. A lot of times we do know that there is, like we just mentioned, this genetic predisposition. And there's this particular allele called the HLA, the human leukocyte antigen, that is found in about 99% of people with celiac. So that's actually one of the ways that we can also test for people who we think have celiac is we could test for this particular HLA combination. And that basically tells us whether you have uh, celiac or not. Having said that, these individuals they basically develop or they are at risk for other autoimmune diseases as well. So, this is something to kind of keep in mind. Is a lot of autoimmune diseases kind of come in together. And usually, whether it's diabetes type 1 or even thyroid disease, there's some form of a a trigger. And often, we don't know which one it is, if it's a viral infection or if it was something like you just experienced with the MRSA. Uh, and like you just said, MRSA is a pretty significant infection. And and during my training, I've dealt with MRSA of the skin, but some more severe infections of the blood and pneumonias. And imagine how difficult it is to treat a skin infection and also something that could be very deadly like a pneumonia. So it's a very serious infection. And this is why especially medical doctors tend to to – not be so quick to use antibiotics in general because of its effects that it has on our body in the gut specifically like you just mentioned it does disrupt the gut flora and therefore and as i just as i mentioned a little bit ago we have are now looking at the relationship between the gut flora and symptoms whether it's gi symptoms or even extra gastrointestinal symptoms so outside of the gut and so we're noticing this relationship with the gut flora and how important the gut flora is to our being. And by us using these antibiotics, we're killing off bacteria and we're sometimes creating this imbalance. And actually going back to you specifically, you may have had issues in your gut even before this whole celiac issue developed and it may have been related to the antibiotics And then the celiac just happened to come about also due to the stress and everything else that's happened. So that's tough to say or pinpoint exactly if that's the reason. But I will definitely say that the the months of antibiotics that you took was definitely not good for your gut health. And that is due to this imbalance that occurs from just using too much antibiotics. And this is why sometimes we'll even tell people, if you're going to be on long-term antibiotics, it may not be a bad idea to look into probiotics, which is introducing the good bacteria in the gut so that hopefully you can create a balance again.
0: Thank you so much for sharing. I think it's so important for people to just understand the implications. I mean, I'm definitely not anti-antibiotics. I mean, in this specific case, I actually really, truly needed them. But I think to your point, if someone just wants to have them for every little thing, when maybe it might go away, or maybe there are natural alternatives, you know, it should be kind of a last case scenario, right?
1: Exactly. Like if you're just having a cold like symptoms, don't just jump to antibiotics, it might just be a cold or a virus. And, And viruses typically last just a few days or so. And antibiotics do not work on viruses, right? Cuz they're antibacterial. Thank
0: you for saying that. Thank you for saying that. I think that's yes. so important. Like so many people are like, "Oh, I'll just take antibiotics." And it's like, "Viruses are a different thing. That's not an antivirus. Yes. It's an antibacterial antibiotic."
1: Yes, you would be surprised how often people just ask for these antibiotics and and I have to explain to them, "Hey, this is completely unrelated and just kind of keep an eye on it sometimes viral infections can lead to bacterial infections just because the overall inflammatory process their immunity and all that good stuff and in that case then you can start the antibiotics but like you said don't just jump to antibiotics as soon as you feel a little something because it can do more harm than good
0: thank you so i wanted to talk a little bit about mental health and its impact on the gut health i know We mentioned that it can be bi-directional, but let's presume that depression and anxiety is starting in the mind, so to speak. How would that affect your gut health, your gut motility, or any potential symptoms?
1: Well, like you mentioned, the central nervous system and obviously anxiety and depression is this imbalance that occurs um, in the brain that eventually makes you feel these symptoms that are associated. And so these individuals can have these symptoms also manifest through the gut. And you may have already heard uh, people referring to the gut as a second brain. And it's not because the gut has the ability to think for itself, but just because it has such a strong complex nervous system and its interaction with the central nervous system can actually lead to issues in terms of diseases or even symptoms. And so Some of the signs and symptoms of depression and anxiety often can also be GI symptoms. And you'll see people with depression talk about increase or decrease appetite, or they'll have kind of like a nervous gut with either some diarrhea, constipation, nausea, and some other symptoms that are associated to the gastrointestinal tract. And a lot of this can be related either to some of these neurotransmitters, are either in in imbalance in the brain, also can also be related to some of these, and you mentioned this early on, these inflammatory markers, right? So so these inflammatory cytokines and molecules that can not only affect people who have depression and anxiety, but also can then cross into the gut and cause symptoms that way.
0: So yeah, I'm thinking about the way our mental health and gut health are interrelated in some very common examples. So thinking of like, you know, let's hear, let's think about times you hear some bad news or you read some news that is particularly unsettling and you literally feel sick to your stomach, right? There's that kind of nausea aspect of like, Oh, this is such bad news. Like I feel nauseous. Or for example, I remember when I was performing way back in the day, like I would be so nervous that like my tummy would just feel upset. And sometimes maybe that would make you go to the bathroom. I think some people have had that experience before where their gut is so nervous that they have to go to the bathroom, right?
1: Yes. And that's whether you're performing, whether it's, you know, a a sports, you know, a game or whatever. Dog interview. Yes. And you get very nervous. You have to go to use the restroom. So, and that's because of the interaction between these nervous systems, right? And you also have a, you have a lot of these, what we call autonomic um, nervous, the, the nervous system in the gut that can also lead to these feelings of having to empty your gut or having this feeling of nausea. Some people also have these, you know, that their, their, their palms get sweaty. And this is just some of these things that happen as a result of these nervous system interacting with one another. So yeah, 100%, these psychosocial factors, whatever they are, have an impact on the gut. And we're noticing that more and more. And we're realizing that it's not only the gut itself, but the brain and also these stressors outside that can affect how we feel, how our gut functions. And in that sense, the physiology... Of how the gut functions.
0: So I'm curious, you know, obviously, as we just mentioned, in some cases, someone might have a level of anxiety that prompts them to go to the bathroom quickly, and that is the response. And then I've also read that sometimes, if the response is particularly severe and there's a freeze response in your nervous system, it can actually kind of turn off your digestive system, right?
1: Yeah, so the nervous system can act in either way. So in some people, it'll cause diarrhea, and some people, it'll cause constipation. And this is kind of ties into the idea of the functional bowel, where people tend to have symptoms. They'll have constipation, they'll have diarrhea, and then they'll have every single test known to man, blood work, endoscopies, colonoscopies, CT scans, and all of that will come back normal. It'll show that there's nothing wrong, and often these patients or these people will come and kind of feel as in, am I making these symptoms up, or am I not really feeling this? And there's always a sense of despair, and this is where the umbrella of functional bowel comes in, which is basically that the gut is normal, but it's not working normally, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, that makes total sense, and um, totally, you know seen about that situation myself uh, with my gut health and everything that's going on and I hope everything comes back normal for me and would you say that if people have a functional bowel problem that it would potentially be like irritable bowel syndrome? Like there's no exactly. diagnosis elsewhere?
1: Yeah, so IBS which is irritable bowel syndrome it comes under this umbrella of functional bowel. So yes, and there's other things like functional dyspepsia and some of these other symptoms that people will describe depending on what kind of issues they're presenting with. But IBS, which is basically this irregular bowel habit, whether it's constipation or diarrhea or sometimes mixed, associated with pain. So people who have IBS have to have pain and they have to have some gut issues. But they'll go through all these tests and all these tests come back normal. And what happens is the gut just doesn't seem to work properly. And so often what we try to do, or what I try to do specifically, is I want to make sure that the patients or the individuals who are having these problems are doing the right things to begin with. And that means you need to have a good foundation to keep your gut healthy first. Once you do that, then the idea is to kind of take it a step further and focus on the symptoms and help the gut do what it's supposed to. So if you're having a hyperactive gut, And you're having diarrhea then maybe slow it down a little bit or if it's the other way around which is the majority of people tend to have the actual constipation aspect then what we do is we tend to try to help the gut move and have better more effective bowel movements but the foundations should still be there regardless and that means eating healthy drinking water making sure you stay active and and have some form of exercise in your life Uh, sleeping well you'd be surprised how much sleep is really associated and effective in helping reducing things like stress hormones, right? So stress, when you don't sleep well, stress hormone goes up, has an effect on your body, has an effect on your gut. And lastly, stress management. This is kind of what we talked about earlier in terms of depression and anxiety, but the better you can manage the stress, hopefully the less effect it's going to have negatively on your gut. And so those are important factors to consider when you are dealing with some with some bowel symptoms, uh, especially if these tests come back negative like they do in functional bowel disease.
0: Thank you so much for sharing. So I'm curious to talk a little bit more about stress and anxiety and constipation. You know, kind of as I mentioned earlier, it seems like from what I have read that We all have different responses to extreme stress. You know, there's the fight, flight, freeze. And I've also read that when in that freeze response, your digestive system can turn off because from what I've understand, it seems like your body is trying to keep you alive. So it's like, let's turn off everything else to just keep Mm -hmm. you alive. Is that kind of what's happening there?
1: Exactly. So it's just going back to this nervous system. And believe it or not, it may be even more complicated than that. Not just the nervous system, but also the effect it has on the bacterial flora of, of the intestines. But the combination of all these things will impact the gut. And sometimes, like you mentioned, it leads to constipation or it leads to this slower motility. And with that comes other things, comes pain, because now you're holding more poop than usual comes bloating because now you have gas that may be trapped in the abdomen and therefore you're not able to pass it readily, comes other symptoms like brain fog. So actually constipation can cause brain fog and fatigue due to multiple reasons, including some of these gases that are being produced in the gut being absorbed and causing some of these symptoms. So it's very important to kind of keep an eye. And this is something that honestly is not discussed and maybe because it's not the Funnest conversation to have, but it's important that people pay attention to their bowel habits and make sure that they're having nice, regular bowel movements because when they don't, that can lead to other issues uh, and other symptoms.
0: Hey there, thanks so much for listening to the Mental Health and Wealth Show. I want you to pause real quick and take a mindful minute, close your eyes, and take a deep breath. And exhale. Take a deep breath again. And exhale. Taking a moment for yourself is so important for your mental health. Now, before we get back to the show, I just wanted to say, if you are enjoying this episode, please review the podcast and share it on social media and tag me at Melanie Lockhart and share your thoughts. It'll really help spread the word about the show and help others with their money and mental health. You can also support this independent podcast and buy me a coffee at ko-fi.com forward slash Melanie Loggert. Thank you. And from what I understand, also, it seems like there is a connection between the brain and the gut, where the brain sends a signal to the gut saying it's time to release, it's time to you know evacuate, but. In people that have slow gut motility, which I believe is kind of like how long it takes for things to move along correctly, like how, how things yeah. move, and am I correct in saying that you know that signal can be either weakened or slow, and maybe your brain is not communicating to your gut in a readily fashion for it to evacuate?
1: Exactly. So it could actually go either way, and the, this, this terminology or this exact idea is called the gastrocolic reflex. And you'll notice that, or you'll see that in some individuals where they eat, and as soon as they eat, they have to go to the bathroom. So we know that the stomach and the intestines kind of have this conversation, whether it's colic gastric or gastric colic uh, colic reflex. And this conversation is basically your stomach telling your colon, hey, there's food coming down the pipeline, just make sure there's room. In most people, the colon says, which is the large intestine, says, hey, uh, okay, I have some room. I'll wait for the food to come down and then when it's time to go it's time to go but in these individuals who have this kind of imbalance what happens is either they have an exaggerated response which every time they eat something the colon kind of freaks out and makes you go to the bathroom and so you have these diarrheal episodes and in some situations exactly like you mentioned it's the opposite for whatever reason, there's kind of like this lack of communication and the gut starts to kind of slow down and not able to evacuate the way it's supposed to and empty itself and therefore leading to the the, the issues that I mentioned earlier about bloating, discomfort, and so on.
0: I'm curious. I've read that the vagus nerve can have an implication with gut health and also depression and anxiety. Could you explain what the vagus nerve is and, and how it works.
1: Yeah. So the vagus nerve is what we call the cranial nerve 10. And, and this, basically it's the 10th when we, when we learn about it anatomically, it's the 10th nerve that originates from the brain. And it's interesting because it originates in the brain, but it actually has a lot of jobs. It actually goes down to the tongue and has effects on the tongue. It goes down to the heart and actually has effects on the heart and it also has effects on the gut. So it innervates a lot of different areas, but it, it originates in the brain. Having said that, uh, and this is actually sometimes why you'll see people who have issues where they have to bear down to bring their heart rate down. So there's, there's an issue called, and I'm kind of going off topic, but there's an issue called SVT or supraventricular tachycardia, when your heart rate just goes really crazy. And one of the ways that we tell people to actually bring that down or bring their heart rate down is this kind of just bear down. And that's because the vagus nerve is being triggered in the gut and then from the gut goes to the heart, slows it down and and helps you feel better. So yes, the vagus nerve is very important in multiple areas of the body and especially in the gut and actually can through the vagus nerve will help regulate motility, digestion, and some of these other things within the gut itself. So if there's an issue with how the vagus nerve works, of course, you can see the effects on the the bowel movements, the effects on maybe even pain perception and other things that could be problematic for your gut function.
0: So we've talked a lot about how mental health can affect gut health. And I'm curious, in your experience, Do you find people with gut disorders also tend to have mental health symptoms due to the physical health symptoms?
1: Yeah, so it's actually sometimes it's tough to really assess which came first, the chicken or the egg, right? And in some patients, you'll see that the depressive symptoms are there before any GI issues even were present. But in, in, in actually, some of the more recent studies show that in some individuals, it's the other way around, where they actually develop gut symptoms. And then thereafter, from these gut symptoms, there are these chronic GI diseases, like inflammatory bowel disease, like ulcerative colitis and Crohn's, or things like celiac disease, or even IBS, where those issues can eventually lead to anxiety, depression, and other psychological problems or or mental health issues. And some of this can be, again, related to these pro-inflammatory cytokines, which we talked about in regards to this leaky gut or the microbiome dysfunction where your gut flora just is completely out of whack because either you're eating bad things you've been on multiple antibiotics and so the gut flora is not doing what it's supposed to be doing. So we're realizing or we're noticing now and there's a lot of area of, of interest in this part of the GI tract where they're looking to see exactly how does the gut affect the brain and specifically, if it, there's issues with serotonin that we mentioned earlier today, if there's issues with uh, gut flora, if there's issues with hormonal or even neurotransmitters, them call going through the nerves and then causing issues or an imbalance in the brain that can cause uh, the depressive disorders. So these are some of the things that they're looking at. And specifically, there's a couple cytokines called IL6, if I remember correctly, and TNF alpha. And those are pro-inflammatory cytokines that have found to be in excess in these patients who have depression and anxiety.
0: Thank you for sharing that. And I think it's also so important that we look at how these gut disorders can disrupt everyday life and also lead to mental health issues. Like for example, when I got my celiac diagnosis for 48 hours straight, I cried like someone died
1: <laughs> because
0: <laughs> all of my favorite foods are croissants, baguettes, pasta, pizza. Like that was my comfort food. And knowing that I could never have that in the same way, again, I know there's a lot of great gluten free alternatives out there these days, and I've tried them and I enjoy some of them. But, you know, not having that choice anymore, not having those options, not having that freedom. I remember um, going out to a sushi restaurant with my mom and my partner and thinking, you oh, know, sushi is mostly safe. And then I asked the waiter, um, what on your menu is gluten-free? And none of the specialty rolls <laughs> were gluten-free because of the sauces. <laughs> because yes. soy sauce has wheat in it. And I remember just like having to excuse myself to go cry in the bathroom because... No way. S- suddenly, I-, I can't have any of the specialty rolls ever again and it's like it's a constant mourning process when you're newly diagnosed and you keep going out to restaurants and then you realize, oh my gosh, I can't ever have these specialty rolls again. I could have the basic rolls, which the basic rolls are great. I love them, but the specialty <laughs> rolls are like where the magic happens, right? And so it's like,
1: and now you can't, you can't even dip it into soy sauce anymore.
0: I know. Well, luckily there is a gluten free soy sauce that I have found exactly. that's, that's pretty good. But yeah, it depends on if the restaurant has that or not. Luckily I live in Los Angeles, which is a pretty great place to have to be gluten free. But you know, it's situations like that where. That completely disrupted my experience being out. It's a continual mourning process because I keep finding out new things that I can never have again, like literally ever, and that's you know hard to to realize. And I know I posted this on Instagram like a month ago when I first got diagnosed. Is that there's going to be a last time that we do things. And we don't realize that, you know, whether it's hugging a partner, true. kissing a partner. And I know that's like more dramatic and it's less dramatic with food. But, <laughs> you know, I hadn't realized that so much of my favorite foods, like I had them for the last time and I didn't know that, you know. And it's a constant mourning process every time I go out to eat. And, um, and I you think know. it's
1: because you and I think it's because you this is such a new diagnosis for you. So you're still going through a lot of these changes as you're learning more about and you're paying attention to what has gluten, right? In the last month or so, where you've found out about the celiac disease, this is going to be, like you said, whether you want to call it a morning or just an idea of just an enlightening in terms of, oh, wow, this food has this and this food has this, and I need to stay away from this. And in terms of what you said in regards to you know, people being depressed because they're not able to eat the right things or they're, they're sad because they're not able to eat the right things. A lot of us find comfort in food and not necessarily in terms of like overeating or undereating, but more so we enjoy eating. And therefore uh, that's why we go to nice restaurants and there's nothing wrong with that. And fortunately, yes, celiac disease limits what you're able to have. And and I didn't mention this, but my sister and my mother both have celiac disease and actually played a role into me deciding to go into gastroenterology. And often these issues run in families. And so when I was growing up, there was always that question as to whether I have celiac. Thankfully, that wasn't the case, but I kind of saw my mom and my sister, and I was quite young at the time, but I was quite young and I I saw them transitioning over and just constantly having this issue of, oh, shoot, I just ate this and this has gluten. And like you said, thankfully now we're in the 2020s, we're realizing and there's a lot of choices, uh, some of them not as good as regular, but still the gluten-free choices are still pretty decent. But there was a time 20, 30 years ago when my mom was diagnosed where there was almost nothing. And... As you mentioned in my bio, I actually grew up in France. So when you said you love croissants and baguettes, that was the staple of, our, uh, of what we ate almost every day. And now all of a sudden, my mom had to cut that out. And technically, we would have to reduce what we did also for the sake of my mom and eventually my sister.
0: Yeah, there's this whole mourning process because like in your case in, in France, there's this morning of culture baguettes and croissants are part of your culture. And you have to step away from that culture that you grew up in. There's this morning of choice. I know like some people go gluten free because they think it's healthy. That's okay. That's your choice. This is not my choice.
1: Exactly. (laughs) Like it makes
0: a huge difference when this is not my choice. And and there's
1: a lot to say about that too, in regards to gluten free being healthy, because often it may not be. And that's why Mm -hmm. it goes down to being informed, right? Informing yourself. And making sure, and that applies to people with celiac because now they have to be gluten-free, so they need to be aware, okay, well, just because I'm gluten-free doesn't mean everything I'm eating is going to be healthy. It is still imperative to pay attention to what you're eating and making sure that you know what's inside, right, that, that makes it gluten-free or not.
0: Yeah, and I think for me, like I already have anxiety and that can present as hypervigilance, and so having to have a diet that requires me to maintain that hypervigilance kind of makes me more anxious also.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I could see that.
0: It's it's not fun and I'm as you mentioned I'm still dealing with it. I'm just, you know, a month or so ...out of the official diagnosis with the endoscopy and it's a continual mourning process of, oh, I can't eat this ever again. And it affects me going out with friends, how I celebrate with my family, what countries I can visit and where I can go. And, you know, I think other symptoms, like let's say for people that have um, other types of bowel issues maybe they have to go to the bathroom all the time and they don't want to go out because they don't want to be far from the bathroom. I mean, these things can affect so much of your mental health in a social way.
1: Exactly. So imagine, and actually I've seen, there's plenty of commercials you may have seen on on TV for some of these conditions and they show the typical IBS patient is a patient who doesn't want to leave the house because uh, he or she is nervous about having to be out and then potentially having to go to the bathroom. Or in some cases, me personally, having dealing or talking to patients who tell me they need to map out where the bathrooms are when they leave the house. And imagine how stressful that can be.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's so much more to think about. And these added logistics just feel like more emotional labor. And we've, we're living in a stressful enough world as it is. So then it's like to add this extra layer and variability. It's it's a lot to carry. So These are such important things to think about as it relates to, you know, of course, there's a impact on the mental health as it relates to the gut, but a lot of it can be from the social experience of being out with others, The, the things that we do, it has to be transformed. And so I'm curious, you know, if someone's dealing with GI issues, what are some signs that people should see a GI doctor officially and get the help that they need?
1: So the biggest thing I always mention is never ignore your symptoms. So, so whatever it is, if it's something as simple as bloating, reflux, which basically just uh, in a way means some your, your gastric contents refluxing up into your esophagus, heartburn, which is associated with that often, or even just bowel issues, bloating, constipation, diarrhea, all of those things, if it happens, if you're noticing a pattern where it's happening more often, more frequently, or even chronically, it's never, I think it's, it's never a good idea to ignore it, number one. And if anything, I would suggest being spoken to anyone, specifically your primary care physician, because some of these things can lead or can indicate something else and something that may be more serious. And often it is a lot easier and better to find and diagnose something early than wait for something to be significant and now maybe even complicated and then diagnosing it at that time. So definitely don't ignore your symptoms. If there's any GI issues, I would say talk to your primary. And, and then at that point, the primary often should have a pretty good idea as to whether they need the help of the specialist. Something like celiac disease, yes, because if the serology is the blood work it comes back positive, but let's say if there's some form of suspicion, I eat something, I get bloated, or I have brain fog, or I have diarrhea, or I have abdominal pain or a combination of them that should tell you right away something is going on. Let's just check the basic stuff, thyroid, celiac, and a few other things. And if any of those come back positive, then take that piece of information and take it to the next step. In the setting of celiac, the next step would be an endoscopy. So have the gastroenterologist put the camera down and take a look and see what does your stomach and your small intestine look like. And then take biopsies to see how badly inflamed things are. And then afterwards, obviously, we'll tell you to stay on a gluten-free diet. And usually that resolves within a few weeks to months. And it could take quite a while, actually. But the idea is to not ignore. Because the longer we ignore, potentially, there might be something more serious that could be brewing. And we're just not addressing it. So I would definitely recommend... Talk to your primary if there's any of these issues, especially recurrent or persistent issues. And then if need be or if something like an endoscopic procedure or even just, just taking it to the next level, I would say that's when the GI doc or the GI specialist steps in and kind of either works with management or diagnosis.
0: I love what you said about not ignoring your symptoms because I think sometimes we have these symptoms and then they become the new normal and we just think, oh, this is how I am now. And we don't consider it to be anything else. But as we've mentioned on this show before, your body is trying to tell you something when it has symptoms. It is communicating with you. And the more that you ignore these symptoms, the more problems that you could have later on. And it's so important to find a doctor that you trust and that can really be on your side. Like, for example, a year ago, when I went to my primary care physician, I said, I'm having all these issues. And he wrote me a prescription and let me go. And I was like, okay, well, the prescription didn't work. And this isn't helping me understand why this is happening. And so I found a new doctor this year. <laughs> in, in, in the year's time, my symptoms had gotten way, way worse, like noticeably, incredibly worse. And I you know, found a new doctor that had really good reviews. It seemed to be great. And She listened to me and I said, please, I'm having so many issues. Can you test me for food allergies? I think something's wrong. And that's how I got to celiac. And I had no idea that celiac could potentially lead to other more scarier diagnoses if left untreated and also can lead to significant villi damage in your intestines. And so thank goodness I found that doctor who listened to me and got me the appropriate test for a diagnosis.
1: And it's unfortunate, unfortunately, that you had that experience. Uh, the most important thing, in my opinion, between the patient and doctor relationship is communication. And that goes both ways, right? So, that means the patient should not be shy about expressing how they feel as well as letting us know and not downplaying symptoms. Uh, We want to know what exactly it is that you're going through so that we can get a better idea and potentially make a better educated diagnosis. And so, The communication goes both ways because as a physician, we should be listening to you and trying to understand exactly, right? It's frustrating to have symptoms, but what can be done about this? If, for example, and kind of going back to your experience, if they give you a prescription and that didn't work, ideally, I would have expected you to say, hey, this is not working. And him to say, okay, or him or her to say, you know what, let me look into this and this and this, right? That should have been the progression. But sometimes, and, and I don't wanna defend physicians, but sometimes we make the mistake of just here, take this prescription and then you're gone. And then it's kind of like, do what I tell you and that's it. But ideally to have that communication, to have this discussion is very helpful for both ends. Number one, it builds this, this uh, trust between the physician and the patient. It also helps us better understand what's going on and hopefully leading you to the right path of diagnosis and treatment.
0: Yes, so important. And so final question, what are some ways that we can support our gut health and mental health?
1: So yeah, very good and broad question. Um, There's a few things, and I mentioned this earlier, just the overall keeping yourself healthy. And in the broad sense of, of health is very important. And that means, yes, being able to deal with stress, right? Because stress management is very important and we're learning how much stress can impact different aspects of our body. And I just mentioned earlier uh, today about the effects of stress on the gut. The other things is making sure you sleep well. Sleep helps reset your mind. It helps reset your body. And so, sleep in itself is also a cornerstone of good health. And people who don't sleep well or don't sleep properly, number one should understand why. Is there something wrong with what they're doing? Are they watching TV in bed? Are they using their phone in bed? Um, Is there something else? Are they eating late? Is there something going on that's affecting how they sleep? And if so, need to fix that. And if that's not, if 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 all of that is normal but they're still having issues, then maybe seek help from a professional. And then after that, just making sure that you're eating healthy foods, right? You're not necessarily going out and having a lot of processed foods, which you know we know can lead to problems, uh, acute problems in the sense of how you feel, but also chronic problems. Uh, colon cancer has been associated with processed meats. So these are things that we should look into and try to overall figure out how to be as healthy as possible drinking water and hydrating, and also make sure you exercise and stay active. So those are the basics. That's the foundation of good health and good gut health. But in addition to that, the idea is, especially from a gut perspective, even considering, you know, including certain things like fiber, right? Uh, There's this movement now where a lot of people are paying attention to prebiotics and probiotics. And I mentioned this, how probiotics means you're adding good bacteria to the gut. You can do this naturally with eating things like yogurt, kefir, and even sauerkraut, or there's even pills for them. The thing about probiotic pills, I'll say is that it doesn't really help anyone and everyone. So if you feel like you need to do something like this, it may not be a bad idea to discuss this with your physician because not all probiotics are equal. And prebiotics, again, not the same, doesn't mean that you have to go out and buy supplements, but again, prebiotics are these soluble fiber that helps stimulate the growth of good bacteria in your gut. And so that means eating these whole grains and eating your fruits and your vegetables and your legumes because this is where you get a lot of these fiber from. So the idea is, you know, you are what you eat, In reality right we always talk about this it is important that we eat the right stuff and we do the right things so that our gut can stay healthy and if need be if we need any tweaks to kind of help it get back on track then we do that if that means taking a supplement for probiotics prebiotics other types of fiber or even any deficiencies in in terms of multivitamins or vitamins I think in that sense it would be okay for us to do so. But I wouldn't necessarily recommend anyone and everyone to go out and spend hundreds of dollars on supplements. That is definitely not what I want people to do. I just want people to pay attention to what they take in.
0: That is such great advice. Definitely focus on eating the right types of foods instead of just, you know, buying a bunch of supplements. So uh,
1: <laughs> yes.
0: <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing all of your experience and expertise. This has been such an enlightening episode that I know people will enjoy. If people wanted to work with you, where are you based and where can people find you?
1: Sure. So we are based out of Northern Virginia. I'm based out of Northern Virginia. we're for Gastro health, And I try to have a little fun sometimes. We do a little bit of uh, social media. So you can find me on Instagram. I've also started a TikTok as well. Try to be informative in that sense. Uh, And we also have our general gastro health website and social media page as well.
0: What is your handle on social media?
1: So social media for Instagram, it's the gut doc. And for TikTok, it's the same, the gut doc.
0: Perfect. Definitely follow um, Dr. Kazemi and get all of your information and reach out if you have any
1: questions. Thanks so much. Thank you. And I appreciate you having me here.
0: Thank you so much for listening to the Mental Health and Wealth Show. Want more content and support? Sign up for the Mental Hump newsletter and get our free Mental Health and Money Inventory Worksheet. You can sign up at mentalhealthandwealth.com and also check out our other blog posts and podcast episodes. Also, we host a Mental Health and Wealth Hangout every other Thursday over Zoom at 5 p.m. Pacific to chat about all things money and mental health. If you'd like to support the podcast, it would mean so much to me if you left a review. And you can also support me at ko-fi.com forward slash Melanie Lockhart. And lastly, I want to remind you to do something for yourself to take care of your mental health and wealth.